Welcome. This is the second episode of Cyber Coast to Coast. And uh, look forward to a great conversation. We've got a couple of great stories today. I'm here with my brother, Craig Schober, on the West Coast. And I'm Scott Schober, your host here on the East Coast. And uh, we want to thank our sponsor, just to make mention, this episode is brought to you by Cyberlytica, providing proactive cybercrime intelligence. To learn more, visit cyberlytica.com. Well, great to be back here with you, Craig, for our second episode of Cyber Coast to Coast. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, It's uh, chilly and overcast here in in Long Beach, which is rare, but it is wintertime, so we'll take it. And uh, I'm sure we'll be back to sunny and 70 degrees in no time. Uh, How are you doing? Doing good. It's kind of ironic because here it's a little bit overcast now. It was sunnier earlier, but we're in the 60s. I think it was 64 when I... When I took a quick ride out to lunch today, so it's a little bit unseasonably warm for this time of year being winter, December in uh, beautiful New Jersey here. So we're appreciative of the warm weather for a change. Yeah. And before uh, we go any further, I just want to mention that you're sounding good. Uh, We have we had a few little audio uh, glitches we worked out, but uh, I think our listeners can expect this podcast to sound better and better each week as we learn because we're you know we're learning as we go along so hang in there and you know we appreciate any feedback uh just follow the the link on our podcast and uh look look for the email address listed and you know send shoot us a, a question or a comment and we look forward to hearing from you all yeah yeah it sounds great well, let's dive right into our, our, our first story here. This is kind of an interesting one. It kind of builds from what we talked about last week on episode one. Uh, th- this article comes from Tech Dirt, and we'll have these articles at the uh, the bottom of uh, most of the podcasts. Uh, there'll actually be links there, so you can actually go and read the article yourself and form your own opinion. And again, please share that feedback with Craig and I. We'd love to hear your thoughts or your take on this, whether you agree or whether you disagree. That's Okay. So this one was taken from Tech Dirt, uh, and the title of this article was Apple's Do Not Track Button is Privacy Theater. And I thought this was kind of an interesting one because, again, we go back to that that subject about metadata and tracking of people and privacy. Um, Did you have any particular thoughts that you wanted to share, your take on this story, Craig, or you want to kind of set the story even feel free? Yeah, um, let me. I'll give it a little bit of backdrop for people yeah, who sure. might not be unaware, because the story kind of begins back. I think about it might have been about seven months ago. Apple announced this feature to um, don't you know it. I, I can't quote it exactly, but it was something along the lines of "Don't let advertisers track me." And mm-hmm. people who updated their iPhones overnight, they saw this come up when they would uh, download a new podcast or go on a website or and download an app, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they would uh, see this message come up. So naturally you would click, of course, I don't want them to track me. Why? There's no need for that. And it's kind of creepy and, and there's, I don't want it. So like they would click on it. And, and a few weeks after that, I believe it came out that some absurd number, like 96% of all people that got this message click, do not track. So Apple saw it as a kind of a big win, a, a vindication that, you know, privacy minded uh, customers, you know, they were on the on the on the path. They're on the right track. They could they know what their customers wanted. And then a few weeks later, you have 
companies like Amazon, uh, uh, Snapchat, and Facebook mm-hmm. complain. You know, yeah, yeah they, I mean, their advertisers make their business by tracking, and and so they they said we're going to lose tons of money. The stock market reacted. Uh, sure enough, there there were there were repercussions, um, and now we come to the you know back to the present day, and it it appears that it's actually not wasn't that effective maybe you know maybe they were crying wolf these these companies like facebook maybe apple was lying it's not entirely clear um if because i haven't seen any real data one way or another because they kind of hold that stuff close to their vest i think mm-hmm. so but it's claimed in this article, and there's there is some truth to it. We'll we'll get into more of the details in a minute, but there's some truth to that because um, you know Apple uh, re- removed the I think they call it an advertiser ID. That part they never claimed to do anything more than that. They never said that companies aren't going to be able to you know triangulate metadata to track you. They're not going to see your you know your um, your Wi-Fi or your email address. They never claimed any of those things. They only said the advertiser ID. So Apple was true to their word on that point. And maybe they oversold it. Maybe they, you know, they said the private, this, what's, what's on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. You know, that Mm -hmm. popular line that we see in some of their ads now, maybe they oversold it or people were, uh, very, uh, willing over willingly believing that. Um, but, uh we find out that uh maybe it's uh maybe it, through metadata and other various types of data that advertisers have been and and continue to track us uh more than we more than we believe um I, what do you what do you what are you thinking about that do you do you kind of agree do you think apple overstepped um, and and prom- do you think they overpromised and underdelivered, or do you think we, there's you know we haven't seen the, all the data yet? Uh, maybe I have a mixed feeling on this, in that Apple doesn't really have much to lose. When I started thinking about it, because what they're selling is different than what Facebook and Snapchat and, and YouTube sell. They're they're not really um, selling ads. They're not selling the data. They're selling hardware primarily. Apple is a hardware provider. So if you're selling hardware and now you can um, brag that you've got the best security and, and it's reinforced, and I've seen this probably 10, 20 times where I'll get the pop-up and say, do you want uh, this app to track you? You know, Allow the app or, or no, don't. And yeah, I, I, track, I, I pretty much say no every single time because why do I want an app to, to track me? And pretty much every every other user is going to read it real quick, and you make a, a decision in about five seconds. You don't think about it more than that, most likely, and you're not going to go dig down in the terms and privacy and so forth. So Apple has everything to gain, but then you contrast that, I think, with YouTube, Snapchat, and Facebook, and this article in particular here at TechDirt cited that already that collectively those three three companies since this started happening lost nearly $10 billion in ad revenue. That, that's some serious amount of money. So is it Apple going directly against them and uh, trying to say, hey, we know how to, to, to send them a message? It could be. Um, and, and certainly they're reacting or overreacting to it because it, it's hitting their bottom line in their, in their pocket. But 
to the point about the metadata, I think we all realize you can even anonymize a, a metadata so, so nobody can associate it directly with you. But then we've learned that, yes, you can. I can take enough metadata and other pieces of information with that metadata and know that that's about Craig Schober. So even though your name, Craig Schober, is not in there, and I think to some extent, even Apple, Apple kind of put this wall up, and I think the, the, the conglomerate here, these other three companies, they're kind of finding a workaround and saying, all right, fine, we're still going to sell data. We're going to take our metadata and now buy and associate other data about uh, uh, this data to make it more powerful, and we could still go ahead and sell information to the advertisers. So what happens in the end? The perception is Apple is secure. We believe it because we've opted out of things. But in reality, I think what's, what's happening, the lie ultimately between all the tech companies to the end user, we're being lied about. In other words, we're still being tracked. Mm -hmm. Our location, our whereabouts, what we're doing is still being tracked through the use of metadata and other things associated to this metadata. And I think that ultimately is not fair from the privacy argument. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I, they can they can reverse engineer and cross-reference. When you have multiple points of data, it makes it that much easier to to triangulate those things mm -hmm. and you come up with all that stuff. And and on, on top of that, you have service providers that can that they're, they're always going to have access to things like IP addresses and that kind of stuff too. So it it's not too it's not too hard to believe that they do know more about us. Uh, than Apple's willing to let on, than or than we believe. Uh, the one thing I would say is that, you know, Apple is a you know they're a very private company about their uh, unreleased products mm -hmm. and also about what they're doing behind the scenes. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if this is just kind of a stage one of a clamping down on extraneous private information so they could they could turn this this feature on and now now they're getting headlines like this saying it's privacy theater apple can fight back i think they have more tricks up their sleeve they have you know they're controlling a walled garden in a sense so there's no reason why they can't turn the screw a little more add a few more features in the coming months or years and just make it that much harder for advertisers to, to glom on to this information and, and target users. So I, I think there's more coming, I guess, yeah. from this story. And we're going to see it play out a battle of kind of Apple versus other advertisers. Yeah. And I tend to concur with that. And, and, and just thinking about it kind of in closing thoughts, we have to also look at the brand of Apple, what they've built up for years. And obviously they're trying to protect that. Plus they've got a lot of cash in the bank. So if they take it to the next level and it becomes a lawsuit or a problem or back and forth, I think they're up for that. They're used to this. They're dealing with this all the time. They're up for a battle and they've got heavy cash reserves. So the likes of a big tech company coming after them, they'll say, okay, let's play game. And it probably will only reinforce the fact that they're trying to draw a line in the sand and say, hey, we are going to provide our users security and do everything we can to protect their privacy. And by the way, they deserve it. That could be their strong argument. And, and a lot of people that are certainly faithful, loyal Apple users will stand by their side and say, yeah, you're right. Why do I need to be tracked? And why do I need all these ads pushed at me every time I you know, visit Facebook or any other site? And they're, they're selling the world on me. And I didn't give them permission. I didn't opt into this stuff. So I, I could see that that uh, round two is coming very soon and it, and it may get a little bit ugly. And I think what will probably happen is 
it'll probably be a mix of, of the regulators stepping in and politicians and everyone else voicing concern and, and not just uh, the tech companies speaking up. And then certainly, hopefully, people will start speaking up, consumers, because ultimately they should have the voice here to, to decide what is fair and what is not fair. And maybe that argument hasn't fully played out and we're going to see a lot more to come. All right. Um, yeah, let's uh, uh, move on to, speaking of, you mentioned politicians and regulatory things. Uh, we can move on to our next story, yeah. which is um, kind of a new, I don't know if you call it a, a, a blacklist. Uh, I'm the, the, in researching this story, I, you know, I found the main, the main link, the main story came from financial times. I found a couple other, you know, reprints or, um, of the story and they, it wasn't entirely clear what was happening, happening. And at least it seemed like a couple different things to me were happening at the same time. Um, and also a couple claims coming from, uh, us representatives, you know, things, uh, it, this, let me just back up and say the story is about the, um, about a, a blacklist of Chinese firms, uh, you specifically us supplying technology components or data mm -hmm. to these firms, uh, to produce products. And they're adding, um, there was a, a, a list in the past of a few firms, and I think they just added eight more of them, including the popular, uh, drone maker DJI. Um, you know, we heard about these lists, uh, these ideas, these, uh, uh, you wouldn't call them a, a kind of a, not a boycott, but you call it a, um, uh, a technology, uh, kind of a defense us put up against, uh, companies like Huawei. Yeah, who, I, th I think that you know, was the biggest one. Like you're saying Huawei, yeah. because, and the part that's interesting is this Huawei, the subject came up a while ago. And I think a lot of it really goes back to that subject. They took, there was a strong stand against China with Huawei to the point where billions and billions of dollars of equipment infrastructure for the 5G network was built out, which they represented about 65% of all the wireless infrastructure around the globe. And in the US, which then later pushed the United Kingdom and other nations to follow suit was a demand to have it removed. And then other companies, uh, the Nokia's and Ericsson's of the world, then got um, the orders to, to build up and supply mm -hmm. and fulfill this. And it, it not only cost billions upon billions of dollars to buy it initially, it cost several billion dollars just to remove it and decommission the equipment. And, and, and over the course of, I, I think, a year and a half, two years to officially remove it all. So this is a monumental task. So the guys that are that installed it got paid to do it and they're getting paid again to remove it and now getting paid again to reinstall equipment. What, what does it all mean to us as consumers of, of smartphones and, and wireless devices? It really means that um, somebody's got to pay for it and 5G build out won't happen as fast as promised. And, and we've noticed that we've seen a slowdown in some of this rapid push to build out. And now I think in, in essence, they're behind. I think that's the underlying issue with this as more and more Chinese companies kind of get thrown under the bus here and get blacklisted or banned, um, like DJI, who, who I believe is a reputable company. They make good stuff. Could it be used wrongfully to spy on people flying a, a drone over and performing a man in the middle attack or spying with a camera e eavesdropping? Sure. But so could any 
company. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if there's any actual evidence that DJI uh, has done something wrong. And again, I'm not defending them or one side or another. I'm just kind of questioning because the story Mm -hmm. didn't real ha really have any teeth that you could sink in and say, ah, here's the specific reason why these eight additional companies are blacklisted other than the mention of other Chinese companies in the past, Huawei and, and so on and so right. forth. Well, it was, yeah, it was a department of commerce, uh, an entity list. And they said, uh, let me quote here, entities believed to engage in unfavorable or unethical activity. And I think they specifically cited the, um, some human uh, human rights violations against the Uyghur Muslims, you know, supposedly. Although I don't, I, I've heard there's proof. I've never, you know, it's hard to see this kind of thing, um, you know, played out. It's hard to believe it in some ways because mm -hmm. I've heard over a million of these uh, Muslims are in some kind of work camps and imprisoned against their will. And we've heard about this for a couple of years now, and and so you hear about that kind of stuff. And then you hear about, you know, Huawei possibly uh, causing danger to the U.S. infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But yet I've never seen any proof brought to us about that either. So it's hard to know exactly what they're gunning for, you know. And then you have on top of that, you have things like the, you know, the Trump administration. Remember, I don't know if you remember a few years back, they tried to force a sale of TikTok, the oh, you know, sure. po yeah. popular social media app. They wanted the, they wanted the US company to own TikTok's uh, at least the, the data end of it, uh, that you know, the technology end of it. Uh, the algorithm might still be able to function outside of the US, but it would definitely be regulated in some way. Mm -hmm. That never went through. So yeah. it was. It's hard to tell where the the smoke screens end and the reality begins with some of these stories, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. And I remember that that, that story fairly vividly because I did an interview on it uh, in New York City about TikTok when Trump was pushing this, and this was a little bit uh, a little bit of time ago. But my my recollection is, in part, at the time, uh, the United States was saying, "Hey, look, the the data resides on servers outside of the U.S." They're, they're residing in China and so on and so forth. And I think what TikTok said is, hey, look, we have servers in the U.S. We'll make sure that all the data resides here in the U.S. to, to make sure it's not, you know, being spied on, no espionage, no this, no that, um, no sur surveillance. And I, I think to, to that note, they seemed somewhat cooperative. And at the same time, TikTok kind of became a, a phenomenon. It seems like overnight it really took off. Um, and, and now I think they've got over a billion users, active users on TikTok. That's up there with uh, the likes of Facebook, Instagram, and all the other big um, social media platforms. And I think it's still continuing to have success net to the point where I was talking to one business colleague last year, and he said he's focusing all of his um, efforts to get publicity for his company and attention to his products through TikTok. And I was a bit surprised. I said, oh, I thought TikTok was more people get up and dance and sing. It's more totally for fun. He goes, yeah, but that's what people, that's what I want to do with my clients and, and kind of lure them in and sell them things through this comfortable type of social media. It's a little bit different means of selling to people because they enjoy it. They consume it. And, I, and he told me stats on how much time they spend on TikTok. So yeah, it's really taken off. But th there's a good example. Uh, Trump and, and his administration really, really pushed hard. Yeah, yeah. Where did you get it? Not really anywhere. Yeah, it's. I'll be really curious to see how these things go because 
you know, with TikTok and, and all social media, it's not just about market share, it's about mind share. And that's a big scare to, specifically to, you know, to US uh, because, you know, you have another country creating this social media, creating an algorithm you know, you're not controlling the population's minds, but you, but as we've learned through things like Facebook and Twitter, you can definitely manipulate the outcome of the democratic process and other things by just, you know, canvassing the entire social media landscape with either false information or whatever, whatever you want to say. And so it's, it's, it's definitely a worry that we have to keep an eye on in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let me introduce this next uh, topic, because this is one that kind of stood out to me and is tied closely to, to our business, Berkeley Varitronic Systems. And, and this comes from Reuters. And, and you'll notice it, it was reported on actually several different sources because it is a serious problem. And the title of this one from Reuters is U.S. Airlines warn 5G wireless could wreak havoc with flights. And wow, boom, everybody's antennas go up, especially this time of year, come out of Thanksgiving weekend. I think that's the most traveled weekend. And the second to that is really over the kind of the winter break as you get into the end of December here where we're at, that people take to the air and they're, they're tired of winter here, at least on the East Coast. And they go to find somewhere warmer, go to an island. Maybe they've accrued vacation time and they haven't taken it. And now is the time they're like, OK, that's it. I got to get out of work with this crazy pandemic. Um, it couldn't come at a worse time than to see these headlines. And it falls on the heels of what we just talked about, all this delay in 5G build out, removing Huawei infrastructure equipment, putting in other infrastructure equipment. Now here, the, the story basically that this set kind of a baseline, it's really a response to an FAA warning about potential interference between key cockpit safety devices and cell towers that are on the ground that are actually transmitting with 5G signals. And if you remember, 5G signals, each generation, if you go from the, the second generation to third generation, it migrated from, from cellular frequencies and the 800 megahertz and 1900 megahertz PCS to higher and higher frequencies, up to 2.5 gigahertz. And now as you get into to, to 5G, they're using a lot of the common frequencies are in that 3.4 gigahertz where, where phones are operating, the 3.4 to 3.7 gigahertz spectrum, um, which happens is as you get higher in frequency, the cell towers have to get closer and closer together, but their size, their footprint can shrink down. So there's certain advantages with going higher and higher frequencies. And then up at the high end, the millimeter waves, where they're at anywhere from 28 gigahertz to 32 gigahertz, that's usually used more in 5G for point-to-point -point communications if you're going a really, really long distance. And, and the benefit for all this is it allows our phones to work much faster. The data rates, the throughput, and there's no latency or no delay if we have to, to simplify it in terms. So imagine you turn your smartphone on, and I remember this years ago when I had 3G phone, and I had AT&T at the time, I'd click to watch a YouTube video and I'd have to wait there for a minute or so just for it to download. Mm -hmm. And it would buffer and you kind of watch it at low res. It wasn't that effective. Move ahead 10 years from now. Now with 4G LTE, you can tap on a video and usually it loads pretty quick. Well, the future where 5G not only is, but where it's going is going to be really fast. So now you tie in a story like this. This is very, very interesting because what's actually happening, if you look at what's called the C-band, is what the FCC, Federal Communication, is, is classifying 
the uh, avionics that they work here is at 3.7 to 3.98 and then also up at the uh the the four gigahertz i think around 4.2 gigahertz so it's really close where it's operating with the 5g spectrum that are licensed bands that that the, the carriers verizon t-mobile at&t predominantly in the u.s they paid billions and billions of dollars for spectrum here that's really close to some of the spectrum that's being used by um avionics and in mm -hmm. particular I, I dug into the actual report because i was interesting the faa report talks about the altimeter is operating in in the low four gigahertz range up to 4.2 gigahertz mm -hmm. so it, it's really adjacent to it now there's always a, a buffer or a gap there right. um, in everything and that's the way they, they space it out like they call it a guard band usually and, and so there's a small chunk in between licensed spectrum so one doesn't bleed over and interfere with the other Apparently, this is pretty close, and somebody must have blew the whistle and said there is a potential that the 5G spectrum from the ground towers could possibly interfere with some of the avionics. And the altimeter on an airplane is really comes into play as you're approaching the ground to land. So it's kind of an important part. Mm -hmm. And in other words, you're off radar. So it might be somebody trying to navigate manually in and depending if it's a storm or this or that, they're really gauged in on that altimeter. Therefore, if there is any potential interference to that, that could be catastrophic to landing an airplane. So just the fact that the spectrum is so close between these ground stations and the avionics in an airplane concerns me. And we all know that cell phones don't really work that high up. Once you get up there, half a mile or a mile up, if you ever tried landing and they tell you, keep your phones off and you try to turn them on, they're not going to work because they're searching for a tower because towers work very uh, parallel to the earth's surface. They don't go up into space. Mm -hmm. So it's only feasible then that as a plane is approaching to land or it could be on takeoff and it gets into the zone of where cell towers are actively transmitting and it's close enough here, there's a potential interference it's a cause for concern, although I, I didn't see any evidence that there was documented interference, but I think yeah. it, it was a really interesting story. And I'm curious what, what your thoughts are, because you do fly. You, you fly from California to uh, to New Jersey from time to time. You're going to be flying fairly soon. Mm -hmm. You as a passenger, how, how does that affect you? What do you think of? Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit, um, I have mixed feelings. I mean, I remember we've been hearing about the use of personal wireless devices affecting avionics and things in the plane itself. And we've been hearing that for years. And I remember, you know, I, I complied with them. They said, turn off your phone. And, mm -hmm. but I remember years ago I was on, you know, waiting to take off. We're on the runway. I was playing music, listening to, you know, wireless, wireless headset, a phone, cellular connection, all the things going. And I fell asleep. Plane took off. I woke up. <laughs> And you know, didn't crash. Yeah. I look, I look around these days more and more, and everyone's doing the same thing. And I'm like, I, you know, I know they're trying, they're trying to look out for our safety. But is there a point when it's they're just being too cautious and just saying like, you know, ah, eh, turn off all your devices. We don't want to, we don't want to deal with it in case the one in a billion thing ever does happen. Yeah. Uh, so this kind of reminds me of that, although. I'm glad that this choice isn't in the hands of the consumers because, you know, consumers like me tend to be uh, 
a little bit. We could we could uh, turn the other. We could look the other way when we when it's not convenient for us. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about the lives of all these passengers and planes landing and air traffic controllers, uh, I rather leave that up to the professionals. And I, I think we can delay the uh, build out of 5G a couple months if it's gonna if we're gonna be absolutely sure that it's not gonna interfere. I'll, I'll, I'm willing to wait for that at least. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good point and. I guess another contrast, when you're in a plane, part of the reason I believe um, they don't want you on your devices, because when you're on your devices, you're not paying attention, especially mm -hmm. when they're going over the safety drill, how to fasten a seatbelt and your, your seat's a flotation device. And again, I don't want to take anything away from safety. I do strive as a passenger, even though I've probably flown a couple hundred flights in my life. Um I try to listen into the safety thing because there's only, there's that one time in your life that you really do need to pay attention and do something that it could be the difference between your life, or maybe I could help save somebody else's just because I'm listening to it. So I try my best to listen, but I think in part, they don't want you distracted on your phone and listening to other things because you're not going to pay attention to them. In the event of an emergency, imagine having a hundred plus passengers that say, I don't know what to do. Which way do I go? That's what starts to happen. So it is important that people do pay attention follow the safety instructions that are given for, for their own health. The, the other thing is on a plane, when you have a phone, it's strange. You can, you can listen to your phone. Your, your phone could be transmitting to your headset, Bluetooth, which is a fast frequency hopper at 2.4 gigahertz, which is really not much different than a cellular transmission. Our phones are transmitting about three-tenths of a watt, a smartphone. The difference is a cell tower on the ground is going to be transmitting at a much higher power, 10 watts, 20 watts, 50 watts, 100 watts, depending upon the cell tower where it is. And a cell tower continually transmits. A cell phone does not because we have a battery in our cell phone. So our phone is, is optimized to be as quiet as, as it possibly can and never to transmit unless it absolutely has to. And when it does, it's going to try to register to the base station, which is called autonomous registration. So it'll give a short burst, here I am, send timing signals, tower information, so on and so forth. And then it goes back to sleep and keeps quiet. So it's almost like it's in the airplane mode often because it doesn't want to suck up the battery. Now, when you contrast it as a plane's coming in, descending, and it gets into that sweet spot of say a, a mile up or less, and now you've got this potential of 5G signals blaring out of a cell tower that is an adjacent frequency to the altimeter operation on an airplane, and it could cause potential interference. I see why this is something serious, and it should be tested. It should be rectified. Perhaps the FAA and FCC will make some adjustments in guidance, in testing, and, um, and maybe even routing of planes. It's hard because cell towers, as we know, are everywhere. There mm -hmm. are thousands of cell towers, and especially around busy cities which have busy airports and people have a lot of phone activity and that's where their revenue is that's where they have the the densest concentration of customers and the most wireless activity if you go out into the middle of the midwest it's probably not going to be that big of an issue because cell towers are so spread out far and wide um the chance that a plane gets there the frequency proximity everything the perfect storm to cause potential interference may not be there um, and, and hopefully they have some backup system. I mean, obviously there's a pilot with some visuals, but there are times in the middle of night or a fog that you can't discern the difference between, you know, 
several hundred feet or a thousand feet. That that could be catastrophic for a plane landing. So I'm glad that this this was brought up. Um, but I do hope that the combination of, of the the airline industry, the the FAA, the FCC work together collectively and carefully test this out and make sure that it is safe to fly. And I guess they were turning this on in December. Now it looks like they delayed it a little bit. The carriers voluntarily accepted this guidance and they're going to wait a bit. And then hopefully uh, they'll grant it if it is safe that they can actually turn on some of these 5G systems because a lot of legwork and money is behind it. And people are anxiously waiting for the 5G really to get going here. Yeah, that's that's a great point you make about the the power output levels uh, from the from these towers are so much stronger than any kind of consumer grade equipment and anything we have in our pockets. So it is something to definitely be concerned about. Yeah. Um, before we end this episode, I wanted to play a message for you real quick. Um, you're the you know you're the you're definitely the resident cybersecurity expert here. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this message I received. Um, Maybe you received the same thing. I mean, I'm sure they're shooting it out to everyone, but you know, we're approaching the holiday season and there are a lot of scams more than ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, They, and they come in all forms. I'm getting text messages. I'm getting voicemails. Of course, I'm getting emails, getting uh, all kinds of spam in my mail, in my physical mailbox, as well as my electronic mailbox. So uh, I'm going to try to play this. I'm not sure how it's going to work, but we can, we can always uh, dub it in and post if it doesn't, if you can't hear it right. So let me try playing this message for you real quick sure. and tell me, tell me what, what you think uh, the average, uh, you know, user should do if they get this. Authorize a payment of $999. We would like to inform you that there is an order placed for Apple iPhone 11 Pro using your Amazon account. If you do not authorize this order, press one or press two to authorize this order. Oh, that's funny. So that just to just to put some context in it. So you received this voicemail. You didn't answer the phone. You just had, got this voicemail. Yeah, I missed the call. Fortunately, okay. missed, missed the call, which is probably good. And, right. and they're asking you basically for a prompt to press one for this if you did buy. And I think if, if I heard right, an Apple 11 iPhone or 11 Pro iPhone, it said. Yeah, it was, it was definitely, it was a newer one. It actually, that's actually the model I have. Um, okay. So I, when I first, yeah. you know, I first heard it, I was kind of like something about my model. No, it's not. Okay. It's, and you know, it's a, it's a robotic voice. So you say, okay, it could be, it could be um, a scam, but you know, Amazon deals with them millions and millions of customers a day. Yeah. So they can't be talking to everyone. And obviously it's targeted for a live pickup, you know, they wanted push one, push two, that kind of thing. And so they missed me, but they probably sent it to a couple million other people. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think would happen if I pushed one? <laughs> oh, I, I think what would happen is it would divert you to another prompt where it would ask for additional information. And usually that's what these type of scams are doing. They have a little bit of information about you. Number one, they know your, your cell phone number, which means they probably know your name. So the next thing, it could either go to a, uh, an actual person that's sent to a, uh, a call center. And often, the, and there are actually call centers set up uh, filled with scammers, hundreds of scammers that are actually sitting there waiting for them to get a call. And they'll, it'll pop up on their screen, you know, the, the description of the scam, the iPhone, Amazon scam, it'll pop up. And then they'll say, hello, Mr. Schober. I see that you were trying to buy an iPhone 
Pro here. Is this correct? And then you might be saying, well, I was thinking of getting one or perhaps the timing of it is they look back of compromised data and see, hey, you got a phone two years ago, more, more than likely your, your contract's up and you want to buy another phone. And this time of year, people are shopping more and so on and so forth. So they make certain assumptions that would make you say, yeah, this deal sounds really good. Or no, I didn't buy that. Oh, you didn't. Well, for fraudulent purposes, let me verify your account ends in you know 5693. Is that correct, Mr. Schober? Oh, yes, it is. For, for security purposes, can you just confirm the, you know, the last four digits of your card are da, da, da on your Amazon account. Is that correct? And you'd say, oh, yeah. So you assume oh, it must be Amazon. They know my Amazon account number. They know my phone number. They know my name. They know the last four digits of my credit card, all of which are easy to hack and buy on the dark web when if, if your information was compromised. And they may say, well, for, for security purposes, could you confirm your credit card to make sure that we, we you know prevent this transaction from going through? because it could be fraudulent or something like that. And we'll make sure that you're secure instead of something like that. They'll ramble it fast with the right buzzwords. And you may say, oh, okay, yeah, let me grab my card. Hold on a second. I don't want to be charged $900. I already have an iPhone, mm-hmm. you know, the, or they could spin the, spin the, uh, the scam the other way. So yeah, these, these things are very convincing. I, I, right before I jumped on here, I got a call actually from um, our sales department, Janet. She's worked for us over 20 years, does a great job in sales. And she goes, Scott, I got to ask you a quick question. Um, I just got an email from you, it appears, that says, please give me your cell phone immediately. I need to call you for something very important. And she said, this sounds very strange. So she called me on the regular landline and said, I got this email. First of all, you know my cell number. We've known one another for 20, 25 years. You, why are you asking me for my cell number? That just seems really strange. And the email didn't look exactly like it was worded from you. Sure enough, it was a scam. And she mm-hmm. forwarded me the email and we both got a chuckle out of it. But which, which is good when, when employees are trained to recognize if something's a little bit off to stop immediately. You, you didn't call back that number because you said, oh, this sounds a little fishy. Anything sounds a little fishy. I think for any of us, any of our listeners, stop. That's the most important thing. Never divulge information. Don't give them your address, your credit card, your social security number, or even part of it. Even if the other party divulges that information to you and sounds authoritative. And if they even said, I'm, I'm with the Amazon um, you know, fraud department, you can go online and check our number. It's 1-800. Well, guess what? They can easily spoof the number and they look online and say, oh, Amazon fraud is 1-800-59359. You know, and that's what will appear on your caller ID. So don't, don't fall for those little tricks. Those are all tells that it is fraudulent. But from yours, I would say 100% chance that, it, that it's probably a fraud. They're trying to get into your Amazon account or, or uh, exfiltrate some more personal information about you so they could then take that to the next level and, and, and form a scam. Yeah. And I've got dozens of these recordings, emails. I, ever since we started writing senior cyber, mm-hmm. I've been, I've been saving them up, you know, storing them away. And, you know, we even included uh, many examples of those, all those spoof emails in the back of the book. Uh, all the time I hear from uh, readers saying it's so great that you included that it's, it's, um, it's a perfect reference guide. I got, I got an email just like this the other day, you know, so I, I know we're on the right track when the readers are reaching out and saying, this is exactly what I need. Yeah. I, I too have heard that often. And, and even though each scam may vary slightly, it gives you a nice basis for looking at something to compare it to. 
And the way we prefaced it is if it doesn't seem right and you question it, stop, make a phone call, ask for help from a trusted friend. If it seems too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. Those type of little tips, it's a resource to go to. And especially because we know from, from all our research with, with writing senior cyber, um, they're targeting seniors, especially this time of year as seniors go to go to buy something online uh, next in the, in the first part of next year. Of course, when it's tax time and people are trying to get a refund again, they're targeting seniors because that's the number one thing. They try to get them to divulge further information and scan them. So I, I feel um, grateful that we were able to not only write senior cyber, but get it into the hands of seniors and the caregivers, the kids that have elderly parents that they're trying to help, that they still want them to be able to go on the computer, use their smartphone, embrace technology, but not feel intimidated by scammers and cyber criminals. And and I'm getting some great feedback from readers. Uh, Now I'm hearing something pretty much every week. Somebody will text me, I'll get a phone call, I'll get a little note. I received a couple cards already from readers, which I thought was wonderful. They tracked me down, which is kind of scary in this world of cybersecurity. But I opened a card up from one reader and said they were delighted reading the book and thank you for writing it. I've never met this person before, but, but it shows that it's touching people's lives and making a difference and keeping them safer. So I think that we could say a mission accomplished with that. And uh, I, I just uh, thank everybody for the wonderful feedback they're giving us. Yeah, it's it's great stuff and it's very important especially this time of year for for seniors um avoid those scams yeah um I, I before we uh go uh do you have anything anything you want to plug any any projects you're working on you want to tell the audience to keep an eye out for or yeah i, I think um one thing that that i'm, I'm really enjoying and, and i just wanted to to, to kind of uh, put a thank you out there is to cybersecurity ventures, cyber uh, crime radio. Uh, I have the privilege of being a, a host every morning and share the, the cyber headlines. And I do a segment on a ransomware minute covering the top uh, four or five ransomware stories each week. And I do a nice little wrap up as well. And uh, I just really uh, enjoy being on, on the airwaves of, of literal radio as well as internet radio and, and also their podcast series. There's a nice series there called uh, Cyber Safety that, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm working on another 10 episodes with them next week. And they release one episode every week. And I just basically share three tips with them, answer three questions about something very focused topic and keep it high level so people have actionable items. But what I do appreciate so much about Cybercrime Magazine is they're constantly educating audiences. They're helping people learn how to stay cyber safe and to fight back against cyber criminals. And that's their, that's their, their sole mission. That's their whole focus. And I think it, it's wonderful to be part of that community. So I just wanted to do a little shout out and thank you to them. And uh, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention just in, in closing uh, that, that Cyber Coast to Coast is made possible really from, from our sponsors. And, and this episode is brought to you by uh, Cyberlytica. Cyberlytica provides proactive cyber crime intelligence. To learn more, visit cyberlytica.com. And uh, I, I got to know over the past few years the team at Cyberlytica, and they're expanding rapidly. Their product line is growing, and they too are making a great difference in the world of cybersecurity. So take, take, take some time, look them up, check out some of the packages that they offer, cyberlytica.com, and uh, certainly you'll benefit and you'll be a lot safer. 
Sounds great. Um, I guess I'll be seeing you next week and our audience will be hearing us next week. Yeah. Yeah. Look forward. Thank you to everybody for, for tuning in again. This is an episode of cyber coast to coast. I'm Scott Schober from the East coast. And I'm Craig Schober from the West coast. Take care everyone. Bye now.